Medtronic Technologies impacted more than 72 million people in the last year, equating to two people every second. Harnessing the power of technology to take healthcare further, each technology has unique benefits designed to serve patients. The goal of this program is to get closer to the patient and delve into the challenges and impact of each technology in practice. This is the Medtronic MedEd Learning Experience. The McGrath Mac video laryngoscope and McGrath Mac disposable laryngoscope blades are intended to be used by trained and licensed individuals to gain a view of the vocal cords during medical procedures. Medtronic's medical education programs are offered to provide attendees education on the FDA-cleared indications and use of our products when applicable. The contents and conclusions of the following program are solely those of the speakers unless otherwise cited. The speakers are responsible for all content and necessary permissions. The speakers received funding from Covidian LP, a Medtronic company, for this speaking engagement. For this segment of the series, a discussion on safe airway management, how has intubating changed with COVID? To help provide insight into this topic is Dr. David Saw, Director of Bronchoscopy and Interventional Pulmonology at Harbor UCLA Medical Center at Torrance, California. The purpose of this is really not to give you the most accurate up-to-date numbers. I think you can go on the web or go on the news and hear that, but I think really just to demonstrate that the pandemic conditions are changing. They're constantly evolving. Where we were uh, six months ago is probably not where we are now. And if you ask me, my administrators ask me all this time, uh, what's gonna happen three months from now? And my answer is, I can guess, but it's very hard to know. So I think the COVID-19 situation is very fluid, and I think we've all experienced that. Let's talk about some of the things that we have learned in the last uh, few months. And this is something that I think we've seen with COVID-19 patients. We have a large number of patients who may be asymptomatic. They don't have any symptoms, and why they don't develop symptoms Sometimes that's a little bit of a mystery and hopefully we will be able to better understand that as time goes by. But I think for those of us who work in the hospital, we often see those patients who get admitted, they need a little bit of supplemental oxygen. They have moderate pneumonia. And some of them will progress, some of them don't. The ones that we're really gonna be talking about today are the patients who have severe pneumonia or develop critical illness. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about this timeline, but it's really when we see that escalation phase. Sometimes people talk about it as the inflammatory surge or uh, the cytokine storm. You've heard these words or these names tossed around, but when they start becoming very hyperacute and they develop severe pneumonia, critical illness, these are the times where we start to get worried. Do we have to potentially intubate you uh, to provide additional supportive care? And that's really the crux of what we're gonna talk about or that patient population is what we're gonna talk about uh, today. Now, how do our patients present? This is data from early in the pandemic, but I think this still continues to hold true. The majority of our patients, we see them having fevers, cyclical fevers over and over. They often have cough and very commonly they will have shortness of breath. So it's primarily a respiratory disease. Now we of course also hear about all the other complications that sometimes these patients will have. They have anosmia, a lot has been made in the news about that, or the lack of taste or some of the GI symptoms. But really what we see is that over the first seven, 10, maybe even 14 days, 
they may remain asymptomatic. And then they start developing some symptoms. And then they start developing the acute respiratory distress syndrome. Now, why and when they escalate, uh, that's sometimes a little bit unclear. But what we often see is that this occurs somewhere around uh, 7 to 14 days. And that's when we really start to worry that they're starting to escalate. And so this is why I will often have uh, my respiratory therapist that I work with or my, uh, the, the house staff that I work with, I always warn them just because the patient has gone through the first five or seven days without any problems, keep an eye when they start hitting around one week to 10 days, that's when they often escalate. So if you start seeing that their oxygen requirements start uh, increasing at around that time, this is when we get to be uh, very cautious with those patients. So we're gonna move on and some of the early data with regards to fatalities or mortality with this disease. But what we see is that early in the pandemic, this was disproportionately affecting our older patients. Now, it doesn't mean that our younger patients weren't getting COVID. It's just that they weren't necessarily getting the same degree or severity of symptoms as our older patients. And this is why uh, where we were particularly cautious with our patients who were coming from skilled nursing facilities uh, or other environments uh, that they were particularly high risk. We saw lots of patients who had heart failure or lung disease like COPD, diabetes, uh, or underlying kidney disease. We also saw a large number of patients who had obstructive sleep apnea. Obesity was something that we saw a lot of in our patient population, at least through this first wave of the pandemic. We'll see, of course, as the pandemic evolves, how our patient populations change over time. And then in terms of complications, obviously today we're gonna to be talking about acute respiratory failure and those requiring mechanical ventilatory support. But we've seen a fair number of other organ systems involved too. A lot has been made about acute kidney injury, uh, venous thromboembolic disease, that seems to be out of pro proportion in terms of prevalence compared to some of the other uh, septic shock type pictures that we have traditionally seen over time. And obviously this may change in addition as we develop new therapies. This is, I think, really important for our discussion today. This is data that predated the COVID epidemic. Now, one of the questions that often is out there is how frequently do I anticipate running in to a difficult intubation? And a separate question is how often do I actually run into a difficult intubation? So, that answer is going to differ in the literature depending upon the population, whether or not you're looking at an anesthesia-based literature versus emergency room or maybe intensive care literature where the populations are a little bit different perhaps than the anesthesia setting. Um, but that being said, I think a couple of take-home points. So this is a large retrospective uh, database series coming out of uh, Europe where they had about 2%, 1.86% of the intubations were difficult. And this was out of 188,000, if I remember correctly, patients. So this is a large series. Now, I think the thing that was really fascinating from this is that 93% of those patients who were difficult were not expected to be difficult. And 
that I think is a really fascinating number because what this tells us is that these are anesthesiologists who are very good at assessing airways. And sometimes we don't do a good job of identifying who might actually be difficult. And this is a number of different uh, data sets. But in the United States, again, just for a little bit of reference, uh, there's about 25 million intubations on an annual basis of which about two to 3% are classified as difficult. And in the different literature, difficult intubations, quote unquote, are referred to or defined differently. But again, I think the whole point from this is that of the percentage of difficult intubations, which range in the literature anywhere from two to maybe 8%, depending upon which population and how large the case series is, a large percentage in this particular data set, uh, data set about 50% of them were unanticipated difficult airways. And again, I think what this really tells us is that we sometimes do a good job when we assess the patients who we think are gonna be difficult, we prepare for them, we bring all of our secondary and tertiary intubation equipment and prepare for the worst case scenario. But I think what you can see on this graphic here is that some of the patients that we don't think are gonna be difficult end up being difficult and perhaps we should be prepared, or the take home lesson is we should be prepared for difficult intubations in all situations, uh, just in case, because you never know what you're going to be facing. Now, why is it a big deal? So this is a series from Rosen, Mort and colleagues. And what they showed was that when you have patients who require more than two attempts at direct laryngoscopy, after that point, the likelihood of success drops precipitously, because you've already selected out that this is a high or very difficult intubation population. You also see a significant increase in the complication rates, and there's also higher rates of patient morbidity associated with this. Now, you can say, well, is this one series? Well, here's a different series, and there are many series which show similar take-home messages. This is a series which shows that even upwards of 14% of patients who you successfully intubate on the very first attempt may still have complications resulting from the intubation. Now, this may be something as simple as transient hypoxia, but it could be persistent hypoxia. Patients can aspirate. Uh, we've all seen patients who have worsening acidosis because we've had difficulty uh, intubating them and the intubation process takes longer than we'd like. So you can see that this complication rate increases exponentially as you move to two, three, or even four attempts. So I think this really takes, drives home the point that trying to be successful on the first attempt, whenever possible, is really important. And then as we said, the unanticipated situation, we should always be prepared. Please tune in next week for a new segment from this series wherever you find your podcast. This is the Medtronic MedEd Learning Experience. Thank you for listening.